0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Canada's climate change plan has been ranked among the lowest in the G7 by the Climate Action Network. And the G7's meeting this weekend in France. Are the leaders ready to make some deals? And the NFL went to Winnipeg last night, and it wasn't a pretty sight. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now.
1: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: Uh, The wealthiest countries in the world, including Canada are lagging instead of leading in the fight against global warming. This is a report that's done by the Climate Action Network. That's a global association of more than 1,300 climate groups. They've issued a report card on the climate plans of the G7 nations, uh, ahead of the leaders' uh, summit that's going to be happening, as we mentioned, in France. Uh, And they hope to pressure, obviously, these nations to step up their game. Uh, It's interesting to say that Canada is among the worst of the already bad G7 bunch. That's one of the general assumptions here. Uh, which kind of flies in the face of some of the stuff that we're hearing from, uh, from the government. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Keith Brooks, campaign director with the Environmental Defense. Uh, Keith, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Yeah, good morning. This actually confirms what we're hearing from an awful lot of other folks. That, that, and, and you know, I guess what started this conversation in earnest a, a couple of weeks ago is when we found out we're not going to come anywhere near meeting the goals that, uh, of the Paris Accord, uh, although that we signed on to that thing. And What's going on here? What's going wrong?
2: Well, uh, there's a bunch of things that are going on. I think it's important, though, to first to, to, to say that Canada really does for the first time actually have a national climate strategy and climate plan in place with a bunch of policies uh, that are going to reduce emissions. And some of those policies are we're going to have this clean fuel standard, which is going to reduce emissions from gasoline and natural gas. We, we have uh, going to phase out coal-fired electricity across the country. We have carbon pricing now across, across Canada. Uh, And a few other measures that have been brought in by part in this pan-Canadian framework, but unfortunately, all of those measures don't add up to sufficient emissions reductions to put us on track to the target that uh, this government pledged to in Paris back in
0: 2015. So, is it because we're not doing enough, or is just have we started? Are we too late into the game here?
2: Well, we got a bit of a late start on it, Um, and some of the policies that uh, the government is moving on, you know, early have been watered down a little bit uh perhaps the effect of carbon pricing may have been reduced a bit it kind of came in a year later than it was supposed to it uh um, most industrial emissions they're not paying the full price um there's uh, methane regulations for the oil and gas companies that have been delayed and also uh reduced um the clean fuel standard is actually delayed and i mean there's reasons for this this is this is complex work and it's really difficult to get all of the stakeholders aligned, and to eat, you know fight against any blowback around you know the negative impacts of these policies. And we've certainly seen a lot of that. So the you know the government's in a position of trying to you know do what's right, live up to their promise, reduce emissions, but at the same time you know not get uh, everybody so upset that the whole plan falls apart.
0: Yeah, you bring up an interesting point, Keith. I want to get your your read on this. Are we behind this? I, I know we're saying the right stuff. I don't mean the government. I mean we, the people. Uh, because you're right, there's blowback on this just about all the yeah. time, and, and governments, whatever stripe they are, like to get reelected. So are, are they kind of going at half speed here because they're afraid of the pushback?
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to say whether we're behind it or not, but I mean, we've seen in recent provincial elections in Alberta, in Ontario, uh, those you know provincial leaders who won promised they would undo climate change commitments that the previous governments had had put in place, and they both did so swiftly, right, and so. It's not only that they want to get reelected, but the truth is, I think, unfortunately, is that if uh, there's blowback around, if a government moves you know, too far or too fast and they don't have the public with them, then somebody else can run and say, I'm going to undo that, and they get into the power and they do undo it. So we actually move backwards in, in a bigger way, uh, which is something that we want to avoid. But I mean, there's recent polling, too, that says Canadians are actually really ready for radical action, that they are out ahead of leaders on this, that folks are talking about, you know, a Green New Deal and mm-hmm. other ideas like that, and that actually perhaps the federal government is, is behind where the public, uh, like they're they're lagging, the, the public on the amount of ambition that Canadians want.
0: Well, because some of those talking points that were used to, to I guess, maybe slow the debate, or in some cases actually slow the process, are, are still out there. I, I mean, there are some political leaders right now that are still suggesting that if you do the sorts of stuff that, that is being re- recommended here, uh, it's going to kill jobs. It's going to kill the economy. It's going to throw us right. into recession. I mean, Trump says that on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Shear's already said that, you know, that, that, you know, it's no good if you have a good climate if you don't have jobs. Uh, <laughs> I don't quite understand that uh, because there's been, I think, a body of evidence right now that actually shows quite the contrary that when you move towards green initiatives, it creates employment.
2: Yeah, there's, there's no evidence to say it's going to cost any jobs. There's no experience that we've had in Canada or anywhere else where this was, this cost jobs, you know, to say put a price on carbon and things like that, and in fact, uh, back in the t- 2017, you know, the four countries that had carbon pricing in place were the four countries that led Canada on economic growth, so Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, and BC. Uh, those are the four countries with the strongest economic performance. So this, you know, in Ontario, when we had cap-and-trade, actually, uh, that year we had cap-and-trade, we added 150,000 jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I mean, there's no evidence to support this, but it rings true to some people, and, and, and politicians use it, you know, to rally, you know, certain publics and, and scare people about the economy and kind of feed into this this thing that we're stuck in about this environment versus economy, which, as you say, it's not true, and actually we really do need to break out of that. We've got to see if there's a big opportunity here. There's a necessity to fight climate change, and there's an opportunity in doing so, too.
0: Well, and, and there's a fear-mongering aspect to this, too, isn't there? You know, yeah. uh, it, it, we've talked about there are things that affect our, our, our climate, and and, the, and some of them are minuscule, some of them, you know, major things that need to be dealt with. But uh, there was a discussion, you know, about the impact of the dairy industry and and, and cows and everything, and, and uh, people are saying, oh, you know what, if, if, if you move towards this climate stuff uh, like the Democrats are doing or the liberals are doing up here in Canada, it's going to kill the farming industry, it's going to kill the dairy industry, it's going to kill the beef industry. Uh, and and obviously, if that's your life bread and butter, and you're you're thinking, hey, maybe there's something to that, you're going to be a little trepidatious about moving forward and supporting any of these things.
2: Yeah, you are, and and even though there's no facts to support, you know, the claims that are being made, right? Yeah. And I think that's the problem is that a lot of the claims that are being made are not supported by evidence, and in fact, there's an intentional effort to mislead people. And so we have this uh, talking about the carbon tax here that we have in Canada, the carbon price, whatever you want to call it. You know killing jobs and hurting people and taking money out of their pockets when in fact we know that's not true right most canadians are getting more money back in a rebate than they're paying in the tax so at least most canadian families better off and then we have these stickers right that the provincial government wants to force gas uh, station owners to put up on the pumps which talk about the price but they don't talk about the other side of the equation they don't talk about the rebate so they're intentionally misleading by omitting key information and this is really hurting our, our climate debate. And I think if we could, well, we need to move to a place where Canadians are having an informed, fact-based discussion about the impacts of climate change, about the necessity to take ambitious action, and about really the best policies that will get us there based on evidence that we have from scientists and economists and et cetera and not be politicizing this issue anymore.
0: Well, because we fall for some of the talking points. I mean, you, you know, the gas pump sticker is a classic example of that. You know, blame the, uh, the the carbon tax for the the price of gasoline. Price of gasoline's down from where it yeah. was six months ago. Then, uh, and, and, since the tax was initiated, so you know, it, right off the top, I'm going to look at that sticker. Then I'm going to look at the price I'm paying. And I said, I don't get this. It's it doesn't it doesn't match. But you know, the, people want to believe what they're going to believe. I guess uh, let, yep. to that point, though, let me ask you, Keith. Uh, governments need to do more and be more aggressive. I think there's a consensus, and I think that report echoes that from the the Climate Action Network, and uh, not just the Canadian government. We're talking about all the governments in the G7. Yep. What about industry themselves? And, and I understand sometimes they have to work with regulations. And but but are these guys doing what they can do uh to try to to do their part for this to try to reduce the carbon footprint especially to reduce emissions
2: you know some are and some aren't but um a lot of these industries kind of said hey we support carbon pricing um and then you know they they sat around and and they lobbied government to say we support carbon pricing but please don't make it really impact us um and so they kind of supported in principle and then and then back away from that support when it's actually going to be applied to them. And there's reasons that we want to guard against, you know, impacts on industry and impacts of their competitiveness because we don't want to lose jobs. And we don't want to have companies pick up and leave and move their operations somewhere else because it's a less competitive environment, you know, here as opposed to there. But, you know, I think we go too far on this. But I think that the companies who have been most disingenuous are actually the oil companies who stood on the stage with, you know, Alberta Premier, then Premier Notley, said we support carbon pricing. And then, meanwhile, their industry association is lobbying vociferously against carbon pricing, It's lobbying against climate policy, It's asking for more and more pipelines. And in Canada, we want to talk about what's holding us back the most. It is the oil and gas industry. It's the largest and fastest growing source of emissions in, in Canada. Uh, and the government's trying to have it both ways, trying to grow that industry while shrinking emissions we can't do that, and the fossil fuel industry is is kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth as well.
0: Yeah, and governments kowtow uh, out of that. I mean, and, and not just this government. I mean, it's, well, this has been going on for years and years and years, and various uh, administrations. They almost let the industry write their own regulations, which is somewhat problematic.
2: Yeah, there's many cases where we can look about um, the industry lobbying for particular kinds of, of regulations and legislation, and, and mostly getting their
0: way. So what? Where do we go from here? They, they're not going to solve this thing this weekend in France, but I mean, it's got to be. I would hope a major part of this discussion, uh, because with one obvious, uh, you know, guy who's who doesn't seem to be on side, most of the other G seven leaders seem to understand that this is a uh, well. The word they a lot of them are using is crisis.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, I hope that this is um, a discussion that builds more momentum, you know, for around the international consensus, and I hope shine in the spotlight on the fact that, you know, the wealthiest countries in the world are not pulling their weight is, is important. It's going to encourage them to take more action. We should be encouraging that here in Canada, but I hope that that it is a, a topic of discussion. And then we have uh, in the fall, there's the, the UN uh, climate week in New York and the secretary general who is again pushing for more ambitious action. And we're going to have another cop uh, council of the parties uh, later on this year uh, where they're going to be hammering out other details. So, I mean, there's many ongoing discussions, and I think what we heard from Canada is that there's an intention to increase ambition and to ratchet up stuff. We haven't seen, well, we have seen some of the party platforms. We have not seen what the current government uh, plans to do if they if they get back into power. But they've said they're gonna they're gonna be increasing uh, ambition. We know the Greens are, you know, a lot. Of, so hopefully, this is all about you know doing more, building more, uh, becoming more ambitious, adding new policies, reducing emissions more.
0: Well, we can only assume, I guess, that uh, if the Liberals will put their policy out there, and I guess that's going to happen sooner than later, uh, variations on, I guess, what they've been trying to do for the last three or four years. Uh, as you mentioned, the NDP uh, uh, have, have issued their thing, and we can judge that accordingly. Uh, the Conservatives have put something out right now, too, but they haven't put any goals on here. They haven't had any standards they need to reach. Uh, you need that, don't you, uh, to, to 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 be able to evaluate just how you're doing and, and if you're attaining uh, what you need to attain?
2: absolutely you need to have timelines and targets and clear policies and all, all of those details out there um, or how can we judge whether you're going to meet you know your your commitments
0: so that's got to be part of the discussion but i mean that's again now we're getting into the finer details of uh, yeah. what's going to happen uh, or not happen i guess during an election campaign but that commitment i guess towards climate um uh, do you think people are understanding the severity of what we're doing here? Uh, you know, I guess I could say some of those same stop talking points are going out there. I mean, uh, it's, it's good to know, too, that even in the U.S. election, uh, the, many of the Democratic candidates are embracing climate as, as one of the key issues right now. Beto O'Rourke was suggesting that we probably have, what, 10 years maximum before—and if we don't do anything, that uh, our planet could be destroyed— uh, and people look at that and say, well, that's fear-mongering. That's not really going to happen. We are in a very precarious position here, aren't we?
2: Yeah, we are. And, I mean, the the IPCC kind of said, you know, for developed – we have 12 years to act, but that was a year ago, so that 10 or 11 years is, is about right. And what they've said is, you know, by that point, in developed countries like Canada, we need to have reduced our emissions by about half, and we need to be on track to be completely carbon neutral by 2050. Now, that, that sounds like a lot, but, I mean, that's 30 years – so it's quite a bit of time to make this transition. The point is we need to get started now, and we need to know like, where it is that we're heading. What's the target that we got to be headed for? And, it ha- and it's basically have emissions by, by 2030, zero by 2050. Um, so I think we can do it, but we have to get going on. it. And I think it's important for Canadians, and this is all time, because this federal election is going to have an impact on Canada's pathway on climate change. Are we taking this issue seriously? Are we committed to more ambition, or are we you know, kind of saying the right things, uh, but putting out their loose policies and plans that, that lack commitments and lack lack substance.
0: I'm all for politicians borrowing from somebody else that does it better than we do. Is there a template that you can look at and say, you know what, you could use a little bit of that or borrow this or use that program?
2: Uh, I mean, the policies that need to be put in place are pretty well established. I mean, we know where emissions come from. They come, well, in Canada, a lot of them come from oil and gas sector. That's, the really tough conversation that we need to have, which is we need to say, look, we actually do need, because right now what's important is we're actually producing more oil and gas than ever before. The industry speaks as though they're constrained, as though they're you know, being shut down, when in fact it's bigger and they're producing more and there's more emissions than ever before. But we need to talk about the end of that growth. We need to stop expanding that sector and to start like to build a plan to wean it, to bring it down and to bring it down in a way that's fair to all the people that have jobs there, that's fair to the communities that have that have grown up there, that's that works for the province of Alberta and and for the government of Alberta in terms of the tax base, and so we need, we need to have that conversation. And then otherwise, we need to talk about um, you know how we're going to reduce emissions from cars and, and trucks. That's that's a quarter of our emissions here in Canada. We need to decarbonize our buildings, and that means making them very energy efficient and also moving them off natural gas. We need to Uh, have clean electricity, so we're already doing that. We're getting rid of coal, but we also shouldn't be having more natural gas. We need to move into complete renewables, which we can do here in Canada. I mean, the policies are are well known. I think the idea of the Green New Deal is a good one, though, too, because we know this will take some money. If we invest in it and see it, though, as an economic development, job creation opportunity, uh, then we can muster the resources necessary. It'll create a lot of jobs and that will really move us to a green economy in in a real way.
0: Keith, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. We'll be uh, watching what the uh, world leaders do, and uh, I'm sure we'll follow up again. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. Keith Brooks uh, from uh, uh, Environmental Defense.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Uh, Big weekend in France. The uh, G7 conference will be getting underway this weekend. As we uh, mentioned a few minutes ago, don't forget the one last year that was held here in Canada. Uh, that did not go well. They didn't much come to a consensus on anything. And then uh, Trudeau and Trump got into a big tiff it probably still continuing today. So uh, we're hoping for better times. Joining us to talk about what we may see and hear from the, uh, the conference is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Uh, morning, Elliot. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Bill. Listen, g- given some of the topics that are probably going to be discussed here, like climate change, like trade, like uh, the environment, like Iran, Uh, Maybe they should just call this the the G6 plus one, because there seems to be a a sense of consensus among most of them, with one possible exception.
3: That was the phrase used last year when we chaired the G7, and it was very difficult to get a final communique, which was then disavowed. So that was indeed, uh, there's that classic photo of all the other leaders standing and looking down at a contented Donald Trump who looked up. Uh, pugnaciously at everybody else g7 um was the g8 we know for a while russia was there and now it's not and that's because of for the first time as our foreign minister just pointed out again during the meeting with pompeo for the first time since the second world war a european country uh, basically took over bits and pieces of another country and uh And then they were uh, asked not to attend. So this is an extraordinary meeting. The G7 itself is extraordinary in that if the countries there reach a consensus, the notion was that they would set basically the tone for international politics and economics. It's first and foremost an an economic club uh, with enormous uh, economic but also political clout.
0: Yeah and I mean you know there there are other inc- uh, incarnations of this I mean there's there's NATO and a lot of these people are involved in that we get that but this is this is supposed to basically be about economics but uh, I, I get a sense at least from uh, some of the comments we've heard from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, President Macron that uh, the environment's going to play a major part in some of these discussions.
3: Yes remember we did chair the meeting uh, last year and mm-hmm. certainly the environment uh, a couple key things the focus on inequality, economic, but also gender inequality, and on uh, climate. Those were themes that Canada wanted to have discussed, some of which was carrying over from previous G7. This is an agenda-setting club, if it works. The topics that get discussed are meant to be the topics that need to be discussed for uh, the international order, keeping in mind that we may be heading to a global recession or certainly individual countries, major countries, will that even be addressed? So the whole issue of what will co- come up and what won't is, is there. A lot of what happens at not only this meeting but other meetings similar, but this is a very special meeting given the countries in attendance. A lot of what goes on is informal, off the record. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the subjects that get talked about also therefore aren't known in advance.
0: Well, especially if it's uh, Trump involved in the meeting, because he doesn't take notes or doesn't have anybody take notes. Uh, but, but those are those are, those are other incarnate. We'll see what happens with these things later on. But the breakout sessions are pretty important. Uh, and one of them, we're told, Elliot, is going to be uh, Boris Johnson and, and Justin Trudeau. And, and again, it's going to be about trade.
3: Yes. Uh, this is Boris Johnson's debut. Uh, he's coming there as for the very first time, he's got a one-seat majority and facing a vote of no confidence on September 3rd. So we don't know uh, how many times, but yes, he's going to be a different and fresh voice there. Uh, the bilateral meeting that we plan to have, and by the way, uh, it's been announced that Trudeau's having a bilateral with Donald Trump, which is obviously very important as well. So Boris Johnson is there to say Brexit is a really good thing and we're going to handle it well and try to reassure people. I'm not sure how far he'll get with that because he's dealing with Macron and with Merkel, and they both are saying that um, a No Deal Brexit and a Brexit that involves nothing about the Northern Ireland or the border between the two Irelands is is very difficult. So the, the main point here is that you've got people who are dealing day to day with some of the hot topics in the world today, economic and political, and here's a chance for them to meet and to thrash it out, sometimes off the record and behind the scenes.
0: And, and we've seen some of those things happen in the past, obviously, but uh, the Brexit thing is going to take a precedence, obviously, because a lot of those nations are going to be involved in that. Uh, he's already gone, to, Boris Johnson's already gone on a tour of uh, some of the European capitals this past week, I guess in anticipation of the conference, uh, trying to garnish some support for uh, for what he's uh, trying to do here with Brexit, and, and maybe even get a little bit of leeway from these guys. But I, I get the sense, Elliot, that uh, both uh, Macron and Merkel are, are not in any mood now to be uh, forthcoming like that. Both their economies are struggling along right now, and I can't see that they've got too too much to give at this point.
3: Also, by the way, the EU is a member, uh, ex-officio, of the G7, Mm -hmm. so they are there in an official capacity as well. The whole Brexit issue is just one of many, many crucial issues that all have to be dealt with either on the table officially or behind the scenes in bilateral meetings. Uh, The long list did, did include Iran, but also, of course, China is going to figure very prominently in all this we know that Michael Pompeo was just here. He's meeting uh, with Trump just before Trump gets on the plane, having just taken away from Ottawa the very clear message that we have grave concerns over our two hostages Mm -hmm. uh, and that he would like uh, more, we would like more support on that. That message may be delivered directly since it's, you know, Pompeo leaves here and goes down and uh, has lunch with Trump, just before he gets on the plane, so the last thing he hears, we'll see if there's some progress on Canadian priorities, including our bilateral issues with China, will that get any extra push as a result of this forthcoming meeting?
0: I thought it was rather curious, one of the comments that Pompeo made uh, after he he met with the Prime Minister, uh, and they did talk about the Chinese, the detainees, the Canadians that are there, but Pompeo seemed to suggest that, uh, that there was no direct link between that and and the Meng Wanzhou situation here, and I, I I don't know if that's because he's trying to absolve the U.S. from any responsibility here because they're the ones that asked for this in the first place. But there's a it's a very very direct uh, co- connotation and, and connection between the two.
3: Well, it's also a direct contradiction of the president last December. Yeah. But you know, Trump says a lot of things offhand, and it's very difficult to know whether he'll come back to them or not. But uh, last uh, December, the president of the United States said, "Oh, we can." we can maybe trade off one and the other. We're in this trade dispute with China. They want Meng Guangzhou, Maybe we, we can do something. And so Pompeo was here in part specifically to deliver that message that uh, this is not a bargaining chip issue, that these are totally separate. He said they're not moral equivalents, that the U.S. and Canada working on an extradition treaty is part of the judicial uh, process, and that trade disputes are totally something else altogether. And they should not be mixed up. Um, that does suggest that one of the obvious ways of getting out of the situation for Canada vis a vis China has been foreclosed, at least uh, for the moment, from the Secretary of State. Because one of the, there were two things actually that came out. One is, yes, we're going to let this go ahead, but the other side of that is, no, we're not withdrawing our extradition request, which is the very simplest way. Of uh, solving this problem, they're saying, "Yeah, well, never mind. We we don't really want her after all," and that doesn't seem to be in the books,
0: unfortunately. The uh, back to the, the Johnson-Trudeau meeting, uh, and and obviously, uh, you mentioned uh, the, the concerns, <laughs> the grave concerns. Some would suggest uh, that. Uh, the conservatives and Boris Johnson have over in the U.K. right now but Brexit exit, which is going to be at the end of October. Uh, essentially, he's looking at Canada as kind of a soft landing here, isn't he? He wants a trade deal, something he can lean back on until he gets that Brexit and the European thing sorted sh- out.
3: Yes. The whole notion uh, of Brexit was that, that Britain, the U.K., is fettered by Brussels and needs to break free so it can float uh, as an independent actor in the world and that, uh, therefore, a golden age lies ahead because then it, much better trade deals can be arranged all around the world. And of course, uh, the most obvious one right now is that Canada has with the EU uh, something called CETA. And the quickest way for the UK to proceed is to come to Canada and say, "Well, just we're already in CETA, so it's all negotiated. Just uh, just sign on and make a new trade deal with us immediately because we really need one." I'm not sure if that's going to play well on the Canadian side.
0: Well, how would that, if they did that, or even agreed to have that discussion, how is that going to be received by the EU?
3: Yes, not well, I would think, but the EU, of course, theoretically, is not a player in this. The EU is saying, you know, as long as you're with us, here's the deal. And if you're not with us, well, good luck elsewhere. So that elsewhere does include us, but it also, more importantly, includes the US. Perhaps we've talked about this. Uh, here we have the the master dealmaker and Trump uh, having uh, Britain come cap in hand saying please make a trade deal with us and he's likely to see this as a distressed asset that he can pick up Trump you know 10 cents to the dollar 50 cents to the dollar so he's not likely to get uh, Boris Johnson's not likely to get a great uh, trade deal with Trump who keeps saying sure come on I love Brexit let's have many more beautiful Brexits and will make a great deal with uh, the U.K., but the U.K. is starting at a great disadvantage when dealing with not only us, but more importantly with the U.S.
0: Elliot, when I was talking about this earlier in the show, I, I said... <laughs> You know, listening to what's going to be happening over there is important, but watching too. I mean, body language tells an awful lot uh, when these guys get together, and I don't just mean for the photo op, but I mean you know, get the meetings together. Uh, Trump obviously likes to come across as the bull in the china shop in situations like this. He always wants to be the the, the you know the alpha personality in the room and, and the one that everybody follows. Uh, there's a lot of pushback from some of these leaders right now. So are, are we going to see that tension between some? Because obviously, uh, there's no love lost between Trump and Merkel. Uh, he seems to like Macron, uh, but Macron's made some rather uh, strange uh, con- uh, statements about tr- Trump and some of his policies in the last little while too. There's, uh, there's, I don't see a group hug coming. Maybe that's the best way to put it.
3: <laughs> well, given what happened to us uh, at the end of our. Sharing of it in Charlotte. Well, we didn't. uh, Our chairmanships, by the way, it's a year-long chair. So, uh, Canada is just now handing the torch, so to speak, to France. The whole question of what can possibly come out of a meeting with a Donald Trump in it is true of any meeting, and it's certainly true of the G7, given what. uh, what's gone on before, I'm sure that Macron has given great thought of how to handle this, and the first thing he did is say, we're not going to have a final communique, which is extraordinary. And therefore, Trump can't rip it up. So, we'll have to see how that interpersonal dynamic works out. Uh, every leader in the world is saying, how do we deal with Trump? Canada got a lot of credit, actually, for how we handled, initially, the Trump situation over, the, uh, over NAFTA. So, the new NAFTA, incidentally, would be something that would be part of any discussion globally certainly it was part of the bilateral discussion here
0: yeah i know excuse me the prime minister and and, and mr pompeo talked about that of course and looking for ratification uh, which obviously i, I guess is going to have to wait until uh, after the election now since the writ's probably going to come down in the next couple of weeks but uh, they, their insistence that canada ratify this is, is a little hollow because i, I don't think they're going to do it on their side of the border anytime soon
3: well this is this is there's a lot of message sending uh, Pompeo was sending a message to the Canadian public that, yes, we have your back. Uh, but also that was a message sent to China. And Canada, in turn, joined with Pompeo saying, yes, let's get this done, which is a message to the Democrats in Congress. And now we have really the leaders meeting. We should probably expand a bit on the G7 uh, and what Canada hopes to get out of that. We, Canada has as a priority climate. And because of the Amazon fires, climate, which was already going to be a, primary, uh, a priority, is now going to be apparently front and center within the G7. Uh, the, the, the priority for Canada on gender equality is, is there. But also Canada's having a meeting. Uh, we should back up a bit. The G7 plus uh, the EU is under a new format. Uh, right now, under France's leadership, they've invited leaders from uh, Asia. Uh, Modi is there, and Kashmir is likely to be discussed. Uh, El Sisi from Egypt is there, but a number of leaders from the African countries are there, and Trump, is, uh, Trudeau is meeting with them, uh, ostensibly on some of the issues dealing with the G7, but it's an opportunity to further pursue one of his goals, which is lobbying for their vote. Uh, when when it comes up for membership on the Security Council for Canada,
0: that's, that's still out there. We seem to have pushed that to the back burner for some time, but I mean, I know it's still a priority for the government to it be is. able to do that. It's
3: a very clear priority. If you visit foreign affairs as I do, they've got to. Special posters up.
0: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, and it's this. It's like, like I say, there's so many subset texts. For what's going to be going on here? Uh, the Trump impact is—is uh, is he seriously? I, I know he's talked about it, but I mean, what he says he's going to do and what he often does uh, can be two different things. But he seemed to be under the impression earlier this week that he really wanted to push for the readmittance of Russia into this uh, yeah. this group. Uh, Macron's already said, "Don't even bring it up," but that doesn't stop a guy like Trump from doing it.
3: No, I. I've been trying to figure, uh, fish off the web, what America's priorities are going into the G7, and I'm having difficulty finding, as we can do for Canada, what, you know, here's what we hope to achieve kind of thing. I think Trump possibly would try to use this uh, for its ostensible actual purpose, which is mobilizing a global economy to face an impending recession, because a recession. Uh, which is bad news for any any country, any time, is a threat to his reelection. So there's a chance that he will try to play a leadership role on on why don't we all get together and be sure that the global economy stays, stays whole. Also, he'll probably pre- be pursuing the situation regarding China, and Canada is certainly willing to sign up for that. The emergence of, one way or another, China is going to be central to a lot of the discussions at the G7. Hong Kong is a factor in that. And uh, it's something you and I talked about, I think, last week, but didn't get picked up much. The expansion of what can only be called hostage diplomacy by China to now include the UK. So, the, if you followed this, or a member of their consulate in Hong Kong visited China and then was arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, maybe for legitimate reasons, but. It gives the appearance that China has no interest whatsoever in playing by the normal rules of the game. And the G7 is all about, why don't we maintain the liberal international order? Let's all play by the rules of the game.
0: Well, and convincing China to do that is a mean task, to, to be sure. Uh, it's, it's so much going on here, and, and obviously, as you say, I mean, Trump obviously is concerned about the fact that he's got an election. I know he's, he's saying all the right things that the economy in the states is booming, although there are some indicators that maybe it's not. Uh, and uh, I, I guess their gravest concern right now is that it may start their downturn just around the time they start campaigning next year.
3: Yes, and, and this meeting is an opportunity to do something about that if he sees it that way, and if he pursues that as a priority. Those are two big ifs.
0: Uh, and the body language and, uh, and the chemistry between uh, the, the, all of them, of course, and what Trump does. Uh, uh, that that final day, when he, of course, as we ca- recall, he left early from the Canadian session last year because he was getting ready to go see Kim Jong-un. Yes, yeah, so that uh, was
3: an important, that was a an legitimate... And that, and that was,
0: yeah, I, I don't think anybody had a problem with that. The problem I think they had was the way he characterized the meeting uh, which was contradicted by the prime minister when he went out to the, meet the media about half an hour after that.
3: Yes. Um, there's still some controversy about, you know, Canada did say the right things, but that they have to say it there and then? Yeah. Because that was, it was predictable that, uh, well, to the degree you can predict these things, that Trump would react negatively, and he was clearly a reluctant visitor in any event. So the, uh, again, the, that's focusing on the G7, the G7's an opportunity. We'll have to see the degree to which it can live up to those opportunities, plural, because of all the bilateral meetings. All of the hot topic buttons of the world are there for discussion. I have my own priorities. I personally want everybody to talk about nukes. Uh, We have nuclear threats going up, and it would be nice if the G7 dealt with that. And I think the um, the issue of climate change is, is an existential issue for us, and also the overt theme there, inequality, a world that's run by plutocrats is not a world which is healthy for Canada uh, or other countries.
0: Uh, so much to talk about. We'll see what they're, they're going to assess. And, uh, let's hook up again next week, Elliot. I'd love to get your analysis, uh, and uh, we'll uh, kind of go through the entrails of what's left there and see what they've done. Sure. Always Looking a pleasure. To bill. T- thanks for this today. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, emeritus professor from uh, Carleton University.
1: Listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Uh, right now, our good friend Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, which is heard every weeknight here on CHML, uh, is going to join us. And of course, you can also read his uh, brilliant prose in the uh, sports pages of the Hamilton Spectator. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm great, Bill. How are you? Good. Did you watch the football game last night? <laughs> uh, you I, know, I didn't know it, they played half court.
1: It, it's true. Yeah, they should have had three on three. Um, it, it's funny that this is the month. That we just had Woodstock's 50th anniversary, and they tried to do a Woodstock 50 concert, and it was an absolute debacle. The guys who were behind the original Woodstock tried to get this 50th thing going, and they couldn't get bands, and couldn't get a venue, and couldn't sell tickets, and couldn't get sponsors, and eventually they just had to pull the plug on the whole thing. It was as
0: bad as Wayne Stock.
1: Yeah, the folks in Winnipeg could only dream that someone had thought to pull the plug on the whole thing and give them their money back. Because last night, the NFL game in Winnipeg between Green Bay and the Raiders was as embarrassing a sporting event. Well, I I was going to say as embarrassing as we've seen in Canada. There may have been other embarrassing events, but this, for the NFL, for the biggest sports vehicle in the world to put on an event like this, is just an absolute black mark on their brand, and and they won't care because it was a preseason game in Winnipeg. I mean, it's not going to... When I say a black mark on their brand, nobody south of the border is really going to care. They're going to chuckle about it. But up here, after you've had the Buffalo Bills series in Toronto that was a debacle up and down, it was just a disgrace. And now you bring the next branch of NFL here and do this, I mean, it, 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 apparently there are people in the NFL offices who think the Canadians are all a bunch of folks sitting around, I don't know doing what, but we're a bunch of rubes who just think that we want to hand four or $500 to watch crap because they keep bringing it and bringing us crap. And I don't know they can do it again now. I don't know the NFL unless there's a team like a real team, I don't know after this that the NFL can ever come back to Canada.
0: Well, there's a a couple of things here. Uh, First of all, aside from the 80-yard football field, uh, one of the other first impressions I got that I found was rather interesting uh, was how small the crowd was. Uh, uh, Football is big in in Winnipeg, and we don't need to get into that. I mean, they just love the game. Uh, But I'm looking at that from a a a geographical standpoint and say, there probably is a natural affiliation uh, with people from Manitoba with the Green Bay Packers or the Minnesota Vikings because they're just kind of below them. There, I get that, but uh, it just you want if that's going to be the case, and I know it's an exhibition game, you want to say, okay, can I at least see Aaron Rodgers with a shirt on uh, and maybe throw a football, maybe just one? But th- th- what my understanding though, is that thirty guys on the Packers roster, and it's not they're, they're they're you know ready for game roster. They didn't dress them. Including so some pretty guys, yes. including some pretty big names. So if so I paid I read, big bucks for that, I'm thinking, hey, I'm getting ripped off here.
1: I just read Paul Friesen, who writes for the Winnipeg Sun, and he, he, he's been on top of this, and he wrote a great piece. People just go read it afterwards. Uh, he was so critical of them leading up to this that the promoter tried to revoke his press credentials <laughs> and not let him in to cover it. He eventually got them. But his metaphor, which I thought was just perfect, or his simile, I guess it would be, is he says what they were offering was for like $400 tickets. I mean, it was an amazingly overpriced ticket. What they were offering, in his view, was the equivalent of saying for 400 bucks, you can see the Rolling Stones, but Mick won't be singing. We've got some guy who's a cover band singer in his place, and Keith Richards is busy, so we're going to get your next-door neighbor who plays guitar poorly, and he's going to come in and fill in. But, hey, it's the Stones. And you go, wait, wait, we're not that dumb. People in Winnipeg are not dumb. And they look through this, and they see tickets at $300, 400 450 for a preseason game. And they go, wait a second. And then when the actual thing comes here, and you mentioned the field. So the problem yesterday was before the game. So everyone's up here now, and before the game starts, they're walking around the field doing an examination. And everyone will recognize that in the NFL, the goalposts are at the back of the end zone. Mm-hmm. In the CFL, they're at the front of the end zone. Well, they had to take out the Blue Bombers' goalposts. Well, that leaves a hole in the ground, so they put a piece of turf over it and I guess stuffed it with some dirt or something. I don't know what, the hole that was there. And the team doctors looked at it and said, yeah, no, we're not. this isn't safe. Someone's going to roll an ankle. Someone's going to blow out a knee. So they had to move the end zones up to the ten yard line, so you had an eighty yard field. I mean the whole thing bill how how do you not have that sorted out before the game? Starts? well, that's the thing that how? i
0: this is the national football League. forget about Winnipeg and I, I that's the groundskeeper I guess that that's a responsibility, but shouldn't that have been resolved, and shouldn't that have been discussed before that and instead of an hour yeah. before the game
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, how could it not be it's not it's not a surprise, I remember years ago what year did this, what did uh, SkyDome back then open 1980 uh, I can't remember, no no 1993 I think Yeah,
0: 93 I, and think I remember
1: I remember the day that they were and everybody was so excited cuz it was the dome stadium and everything else and they, even here in Hamilton everybody was so excited and I remember it was about 3 days before that everybody was on pins and needles in Toronto and this area because major league baseball was sending its people to Toronto to check the dome and make sure that everything was okay, that the lights were okay in the right place, and everything was safe for baseball. That was three days before. I still remember at that time thinking, wow, that's really close. Like, what do you do with a bunch of lights that are permanently affixed if they're not right? But, Bill, this is an hour before the game that you've known is coming here for months, and no one has thought to say, huh, wonder how this is going to work. Like, it just The whole thing just became this ridiculous debacle that, again, if you're in Winnipeg, if look, if I'm if I'm somebody there who was one of the chumps who thought, "Hey, the NFL's coming." I yeah, okay, I know it's a lot, but two of us are going to go. That's going to be 800 bucks. Man, I am not a happy camper this morning after
0: what I saw. Well, and that's it. I mean, it's NFL and it's, it's exhibition. I get that. But uh, it, it just seems as if I don't know who set this up or what the the intended goal was just to bring them up there for whatever reason uh but it just didn't go well and obviously the fans didn't buy into it and there was a, a lot I saw some some negativity on social media after actually some people were even complaining about the play by play uh Beth Mowins I think it was that was doing the game she's very good I don't know what people maybe they're just in a bad mood anyway but but it, I would think <laughs> yeah yeah, she's, she's 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 called NFL games in the past. She's been on ESPN for years now. She's she's I think an outstanding probably by play and outstanding sports broadcaster. But but it's just people didn't get their money's worth. That's the whole thing. And and I kept thinking, anybody who's watching this back home, and thank God it wasn't a national broadcast, uh, you know, back to the states, uh, they're going to look at that and say that's bush league.
1: It is, but I don't blame the people in Winnipeg. In fact, I congratulate the people in Winnipeg because. I applaud those who can see through moves like this where the Purdue promoter and the league and the teams all decide, we've found a bunch of suckers that we can steal money from, and they're going to pay whatever we offer, whatever we charge. They're going to pay it because we are the NFL. And I applaud the people in Winnipeg for saying, no, 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 wait a second, we're not a bunch of backwater hillbillies over here. You want to do this, go to some college town in the States and see if they want to fork out this kind of money for you, because we're not. Uh, and, and as I said off the top, Bill, the Bill. everyone remembers the Buffalo Bills series for a number of years that was held in Toronto. And it was a disaster. It, it lost money. It was, it was horrible. I don't know where the NFL can next come back to, to Canada and try and sell itself, unless they want to come back and charge 50 bucks a ticket, which you know is not going to be the case. I, I just don't see how they convince the next crowd to fork out. I mean, I don't care where you go. I don't care if you go to Regina, where football is the absolute king of everything. I, I just don't see how you do it.
0: Well, if, if they want to start shopping around outside the United States, I don't think they're looking north of the border here. And I know there's people in Toronto that are still, oh, no, no, we're next for the NFL. That's not going to happen. I mean, they went to Mexico City, remember, a couple of years ago. And they, I think they put what 120,000 people into that stadium yeah. for the game. Yeah. Now, now, that, and that's that's a fan base. And in Canada here, maybe we're a little more discerning. I mean, you're right. The stuff at Skydome with the Bills was was a, just a disaster. Uh, they ended up having to paper the crowd. In other words, they were giving, giving tickets away just to put people in the seats so it didn't look as yeah. embarrassing as it did. Uh, but it, it just never took off, and I, I, that's why I'm wondering why they tried to do this all, at all places. I mean, you can sort of see that if it's a, a border town, like the, the Buffalo to Toronto thing. It's an hour drive, or Vancouver with Seattle or something like that. But to to do one in Winnipeg, I mean, it's a bit of a drive for people, so this is just for the, really for the Manitoba residents. And, and judging by what we saw in the stands last night, uh, they just weren't buying it.
1: That said... I still do believe that if you were to give Toronto an NFL team, and I'm with you, I don't think it's coming, but if you were to legitimately give Toronto its own team, and, and you'd have to build a stadium and all that kind of stuff, but if Toronto had an NFL team that was its own, it would be a wild success. I have no doubt about that. The problem is an, an NFL team these days is going for between two and $3 billion minimum, your stadium, the new stadia that they're building, are all costing in the neighborhood of about a billion dollars, and that's all U.S. So, uh, so your startup costs are going to be in the neighborhood of five or six billion dollars. Who, I mean, there are some rich people in this country, and maybe you know somebody from the Thompson family or whatever wants to do that. Ironically, from Winnipeg, um, maybe maybe he's been soured on it. But boy, you're talking about a massive, massive investment. Even if you could get your hands on a team, and I don't know that there are many people who are who are able, let alone willing, who are and if we keep one other thing in mind. The NFL likes individual owners. They don't want corporations. Rogers wouldn't probably be able to buy a team. So who are the people in this country? It could work, but I don't I don't ever see it coming here because as you say, you can go to Europe, you can go to Mexico, you can go to lots of other places with T V markets that are much bigger than Canada, with revenue streams much bigger than Canada. Uh, just don't do this again.
0: Well, there's, a, there's an, I think, a, an even bigger stumbling block, uh, just again, to, to take the window of the sales of any possible Toronto franchise. Uh, NFL owners look after each other. They scratch each other's back. I mean, they're, it's a very exclusive club. And uh, you will, in my mind, never see a National Football League team in Toronto as long as there's a team in Buffalo. Uh, just as just as Buffalo would dearly love to have a Major League Baseball team, but they're never going to get one as long as the Blue Jays are in Toronto. Uh, Terry Pegula is the, the owner of the Bills. He's got a lot of money, and and billionaires like billionaires. And then we know that a large percentage of people that go to the Buffalo Bills games cross the border. They're they're Canadians, uh, and that would that would kill the attendance at Buffalo Bills games if you put a team in Toronto. So it's just not going to happen.
1: You are one thousand percent correct. You are because. If you've ever been down, and I know you have, and I have, and many people listening have, have driven down to go to a Bills game, the lineup at the border, coming and going is very, very long. There are a lot of people who go for that experience to go for the tailgate, even if the team is horrible. And yeah, you're right, you suddenly lop off in a very small market. you lop off 20, 25, 30 percent of their potential audience. Now that team dies. So I, you're right, there is for that reason alone. They're, they're never going to. And, and I say the reverse, with, the reverse is true.
0: The reverse is true with baseball too, and that's and that's a tragedy because baseball. Buffalo is a great baseball town. It's a great sports town, uh, but they got a great little stadium there just by the lake. And and but and, and I know they've applied when they have been expansion talks about Major League Baseball. Buffalo's applied, uh, and they just don't get past that first round, and it's because. Uh, the people that own the Blue Jays simply say, y- you can't do that to us. And they don't because Major League Baseball owners are just like NFL owners. They they, they look after each other. They're not going to – in markets like New York, you can do that because there's 85 billion people there. <coughs> <laughs> That's true. No, you're You right. you could build a you're new arena, right. a new stadium uh, in, on the shores between Jersey and New York, and 70,000 people would show up just to find out why the lights were on. I mean, they don't care. They just show up for that because there's so many people there. Not the case here.
1: Ironically, doesn't work in Los Angeles, which, I, which I've still not quite understood, because now that they've got the the Chargers moved there and you got the, the, you know, just down the road. I mean, you have teams in L.A., you got the Rams there now, and neither of those teams are kicking butt at the box office. I don't quite understand. But you're right. You, you have these certain markets like Buffalo that just, and we, look, we've seen it with hockey, too, with Hamilton. Heaven knows we've seen it, that discussion come up. Yeah. It's not just the Leafs when we talk about an NHL team in Hamilton. It is the Buffalo Sabres that we talk about with an NHL team in Hamilton. Te- leagues do not want to kill one team to build another team. They don't. They want to strengthen what they've got, and then if they can make their brand or their, their pot of money even deeper, they'll do that. But they're not going to cut off their nose to spite their face, as the saying goes. And so that's why it, we'll never see it here on a real full-time basis And I don't know that we're ever, as I say, I don't know if we're ever going to see an NFL exhibition game come back. I mean, I should never say never. You know, give it ten years, people will forget. They'll try again. It'll fail. We'll then laugh about it and mock them, and then they'll wait another ten years and they'll keep doing it until one of them finally works somehow, and people go, "Oh, that was fun," and then they'll screw up the next one.
0: And and keep in mind, and and, you know, because we always hear this, and there's going to be stuff on social media after this conversation now about, you know, should Toronto get a team, a Hamilton hockey team? That's that's still going to be out there. When they make the decisions about this stuff, whatever sport, whatever league it is, they don't care about the fans' interest. It's all about whether or not they can make money. And there's no business case for for that to happen. Or there's a a negative business case for somebody who's close by. So, you know, that's just not going to happen anytime soon. It's interesting, I mean, because, you know, the uh, the Bombers, I think they're on the road tonight. I don't think they play at home tonight. But they'll fill the arena. They can't. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, not now. They couldn't. Yeah, they, they, I don't know if they can turn that around in time. Uh, Canadian football fans, I, I love the NFL. I know some people have already written here as you and I are talking, say they're going to go bashing the NFL. I love the NFL. You you see all the Patriots memorably in my office. I mean, I I watch games every Sunday. But, uh, you know, for a league that's supposed to have their act together, they they put on a pretty poor show last night. I know the it's quality not- of play was pretty good, but these these, these were guys with third stringers.
1: It's not about bashing the NHL, Bill. You're right. They they put on a great show week after week through the year. It's about bashing the part, the, the arm of the NFL that would look at other places and see easy dollars and not think through the plan and apparently seemingly not give a rip about whether they're delivering a good product to those other people. You would never... In a million years, have seen the NFL do this during a regular season game in one of their own stadiums. They'd be too proud to do that.
0: No kidding. Anyway, it's over, done. Let's uh, try to put it behind us now. <laughs> uh, Scott, Next year, you get at Tim Hortons Field. There we right. go. Yeah, let's. Yeah, we'll talk about it. trying to bring those guys in. <laughs> Not. Have a good show tonight. We'll talk later. Thanks, Bill. Scott Radley, of course, host of the Scott Radley Show.
1: The Bill Kelly Show.